You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. What would you think if you were walking down the street and you ran across somebody and in the course of conversation they said to you that they didn't really believe that there was ever an individual named Abraham Lincoln or that our country ever went through a civil war? And then they further went on to say that they really didn't believe there was ever an individual named Adolf Hitler, nor was there a world war in the mid-1900s. And then they further went on to say that they really didn't believe that Two airliners were hijacked by terrorists who flew them into the World Trade Center and that the World Trade Center was still standing in downtown New York City. What would you say to that? You would probably question their grip on reality. You might even question their sanity. You may give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they were born on a deserted island somewhere and that they just had been locked away from all news and all history and all understanding of current events. But would you call such an individual a scholar? Would you call them an intellect? A great historian? Would you call them that? You'd say you're insane. You might call them a crackpot or a nut job, but you certainly would not call them a scholar. Yet that is exactly the title that is used to apply to men and women who deny that Jesus existed and deny that three days after he suffered, that he presented himself alive with many infallible and convincing proofs. We call them historians, we call them scholars, we call them intellectuals, or at least that's what they're called on the History Channel and National Geographic television and in the newspapers and in the magazines, that's what they call them. If they can rewrite history and shape Jesus out to be somebody that he never was, then they are instantly labeled a scholar or an intellectual or a great historian. And there was never a grosser misuse of the English language than to call people like that scholars. I would submit to you that the individual who denies that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave three days after he was crucified is just as much a fool as the individual who would deny that Abraham Lincoln lived and was president of the United States during a civil war. The individual who denies that Jesus Christ is raised bodily from the grave three days after he suffered is just as much a fool as the individual who would deny that the World Trade Center crumbled to the ground and would assert that it's still standing there today. Fools. Cleverly devised fables. There's two mistakes that you can make regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Two ways that you can demonstrate your folly. First, you can deny that it ever happened. Say, well, he didn't really live... Or maybe the resurrection was just a concoction of his disciples after he died. They disposed of the body somewhere. Or it was just a big plot and he sort of fabricated the whole myth of a resurrection in order to deceive the disciples and start a church. People will deny that it ever happened. Or they'll say that his body was thrown into a grave or eaten by wild dogs or just buried or that the resurrection was fabricated hundreds of years after Jesus lived that he really never did rise again. That's folly. The second way to demonstrate your foolishness regarding the resurrection is to deny that it really matters. 
to say that, well, maybe he rose, maybe he didn't, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the Christian faith doesn't really rest upon whether or not he rose bodily from the grave because it's not going to affect our love for one another or our message about God's love or the unity we have as a community of faith. That's folly. It is foolishness to deny that it happened, and it is foolishness to deny that it really does matter. And I want to show you this morning just how central the resurrection of Jesus Christ was to the life and the ministry and the message of the early church. And I want to do that from the book of Acts. So open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. As you think in your mind, Jim, are you ever going to get out of the book of Acts? I will. As soon as we're done with the book of Acts, then we will leave the book of Acts right on time. But this is a good opportunity for us to sort of go back and go forward a little bit. And I want to give you an exposition of the theme of resurrection through the whole book of Acts. Now, I have a question to ask you. When you found Acts chapter 1, your Bible should fall open to the book of Acts, by the way. I have a question to ask you. How many times would you say the resurrection of Jesus Christ is mentioned in the book of Acts? And just answer that in your mind. Don't answer out loud. Don't tell your neighbor. How many times is the resurrection of Jesus Christ mentioned in the book of Acts? Now you're thinking through in your mind, okay, well, probably a couple times in Peter's messages, a couple times that Paul talked about it. Um, I can think of this time and that time. And if you've been here for a while and you've gone through the book of Acts with us, just think back. Come up with kind of a number. And I, I want you to really try and hit the ballpark. Imagine that this is a game show and the prize is going to go to the the person or the group who gets it closest. How many times is the resurrection of Jesus Christ mentioned in the book of Acts? Now I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you would say between one and five times? Raise your hand. One and five. Okay, no fair doing this stuff looking around. How many times do you think? Not how many times does the people around you who raise their hands think. How many would say between five and ten times in the book of Acts? About half a dozen, okay. How many between 10 and 15? Quite a few more. How many between 15 and 20? Raise your hands. How many between 20 and 25? Raise your hands. And how many of you would say 25 times or more? Raise your hand. I read through the book of Acts this last week, and I took down every reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from chapter 1 through chapter 28, and I counted... 21 references to the resurrection in the book of Acts. 21. Now, I may have missed one or two, but I can vouch for 21 references to the resurrection of Christ in the book of Acts. Friends, if you have no resurrection, you have no book of Acts. That's what it boils down to. You have no church. You have no apostles. You have no mission. You have no message. You have nothing. Without the resurrection, you have nothing. 21 times in 28 chapters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes up. You say, I thought it was about the life and the ministry of Peter and Paul. It is. I thought it was about the message of the early church. It is. I thought it was about early Christianity and the spread of the gospel. It is. And central to all of those things is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, mentioned at least 21 times in the book of Acts. I want to show you Four things that you and I can see about the resurrection from the book of Acts. Beginning in chapter 1, the very first thing that we see about the resurrection is that it is a verifiable, historical fact. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. 
The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning or at least from the midway point of the book of Acts, then you know that there are two main characters in the book. Who are they? The first half of the book focuses on Peter. The second half of the book focuses on Paul. Peter and Paul. Two main characters. It's interesting to me and significant, I think, that Luke, when he begins the book of Acts, does not introduce either one of the main characters. He does not say, now here's the story of Peter and how he got started in ministry, or here's the story of Saul of Tarsus and who he is. doesn't do that. What does he introduce? Not the central characters, but the central message, the central idea, the central theme, the thing without which there is no book of Acts. He begins by saying, Jesus Christ, after He suffered, presented Himself alive with many convincing proofs. He begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because listen, folks, the characters may change, but the message never does. Peter and Paul can pass from the scene. John and James can leave. You and I can die and rot in the grave. The characters may change, but the message never does. So he doesn't begin with the characters. He begins with the central theme of the entire book. Jesus Christ, after He suffered, presented Himself alive with many convincing proofs. What kind of convincing proofs? Well, you'll notice in verse 3 that Dr. Luke gives us a couple of those convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Over a 40-day period of time, Jesus Christ appeared. We read about some of those appearances in 1 Corinthians 15. To the apostles, to the twelve, to James, to Peter. We read about other appearances to the women in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all of the Gospels that record the appearances. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. There's another convincing proof. He taught them, speaking to them, of the things concerning the kingdom of God. For 40 days he met with the apostles after his resurrection and he taught them the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's a convincing proof. Do you want another convincing proof? The women after they left the tomb and were running back to the disciples to tell them what had happened, what they had seen, and that the body was gone, that the tomb was empty, and that the angels were there, they met the Lord Jesus on the road back to the disciples. That's a convincing proof. That tells me that the disciples were not hallucinating. That tells me that they were not fabricating this. Now listen, if, if, if the story of the New Testament was that he appeared to one or two or three people and that was a closely guarded secret, then you and I might say there sounds, there sounds like there could be collusion there. Sounds like there could be some collaboration between a few of them to foist this myth off, off on us. And that's not the way it was. You want another convincing proof? In Luke, two of his disciples are walking along the road and a man comes up starts walking next to them and the text says their eyes were kept from recognizing who it was there's a purpose behind them being blinded for a period of time and not recognizing who they're walking with and they're all downcast and downtrodden and they're really depressed and they say well this man appeared Jesus of Nazareth and he worked signs and wonders we thought he was the messiah we thought he was the king we thought he was the one who came to set up David's throne and to deliver the nation of Israel and then the man walking beside them turned out to be Jesus because you know the end of this story The man walking beside them said, Don't you understand what was written in the prophets concerning him? And then beginning at Moses, beginning at Genesis, and then all the way through, as they walked to Emmaus, he spent his whole time unfolding all of the scriptures pertaining to himself. 
And then he sat down with him and he broke bread. That's a convincing proof. You know why? Because hallucinations don't break bread. He broke bread. And then later that night when he appeared to all the disciples, because they left from Emmaus and they went back to the rest of the disciples, and they said, you'll never guess what we saw. And then Jesus appeared in the midst of all of them. And Luke says they thought they were seeing a ghost. They couldn't believe it. It's a hallucination. It's a spirit. It's a vision. It's an image. And the risen Christ said, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood like you see that I have. I don't think they still got it. So he said, do you have any food? Well, yeah, we have some broiled fish. See, spirits don't pick up broiled fish and eat fish. So he picked up the fish and he ate it in their presence to demonstrate that it was him. That he was alive. Want another convincing proof? He made breakfast for them on the sea, Galilee, John chapter 20. You know how the risen Christ makes breakfast? Breakfast. That's it. He made breakfast for them right on the seashore. Hallucinations, spirits, ghosts, don't make and eat breakfast with disciples. It's convincing proof. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, if you doubt the resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, and if you don't believe me, go to Jerusalem and interview them and check it out. Do you know how many hours it would take to hear five minutes of testimony from 500 people who witnessed the risen Christ? That's a convincing proof. He presented Himself alive with many convincing proofs. And listen, even Thomas was convinced. Doubting Thomas. I think doubting Thomas gets a bad rap. I don't necessarily think he was all that doubting. I think Thomas was just a good empiricist. I need some evidence. Thomas had convincing proof of one thing. A dead Jesus. He had seen the crucifixion. He had seen the the death certificate had been issued. He saw the spear. He saw the death. He knew it was a dead body. Eyewitnesses put him in a grave. Thomas saw all of that. Thomas had convincing proof of one thing. He was dead. And then when Christ appeared to the ten of them who were left, Thomas was out of the loop. And the ten said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. No. I've seen the Lord too. And I saw Him dead. And Thomas knew dead people, normally speaking, do not come back to life. And Thomas said, unless I put my finger in that wound, in his hands and in his feet, and unless I can put my hand in his side where that spear went in, unless I can stand and see a body that I can examine and say he is risen, I will not believe. And when the Lord showed up, Thomas didn't put his finger in his hand. Thomas didn't put his hand in his side. Thomas fell down on his face and said, my Lord and my God. And he believed. That's a convincing proof. But listen, for some people, and I fear maybe even for some of you, no evidence would be enough evidence. No proof would be enough proof. Some people will not believe no matter what the evidence and no matter what the proof. And if Jesus Christ were standing right in their presence, the risen Lord, some people would find a way to explain away what they see with their own eyes. It's a hallucination. I can't trust this. It was a bad burrito that I had for lunch. Something else would have caused them to have hallucinated or to have witnessed this thing. But they would not believe. John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He had died four days in the tomb, and Jesus raised him back to life. And Lazarus was walking around alive again. 
And what did the religious leaders and the elders and the scribes and the critics of Christ, what did they say? Did they say, well, he must really be the Messiah, the Son of God then? They didn't say that, did they? They knew Lazarus was dead. They knew he had been dead for four days. They knew that Jesus had raised him from the dead. And they could go and they could talk to Lazarus himself. They could see for their for themselves with their own eyes the proof of who Jesus was. And what did they say? If we let this man continue this way, everybody's going to believe on him. We have to destroy him. No matter what the proof is, they wouldn't believe. Matthew chapter 12. After all of the miracles that demonstrated that he was the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, in the face of all of that light and all of that evidence and all of that proof, they said to themselves, he performs the miracles, but he performs them by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. For some people, no amount of proof is sufficient proof. But we know that he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. Friends, you and I are 2,000 years removed from those events. And I think Theophilus, the man whom this was written to, the book of Acts was written to, was probably as many miles removed from the events. But Luke is citing eyewitness testimony, and Theophilus could make a trip to Jerusalem and interview the eyewitnesses if he wanted to. The first thing we see from the book of Acts is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a literal, verifiable, historical event. And the only explanation for all of the facts is that three days after he suffered, he presented himself alive to his apostles with many convincing proofs. The second thing we see about the resurrection of Christ from the book of Acts is that it was the heart of gospel preaching. Now, if he is risen, then that carries with it certain implications. Certain things follow from that. It's not as if the apostles said, okay, he's risen. We'll take that at face value. That's fine. Now we're going to go out and we've got our own little message to proclaim. That's not what they did. The fact that he is risen became the central message of the entire New Testament and all of the book of Acts and all of the ministry for all of the churches. They would say he is risen. He is risen indeed. And that was the central thesis of it all. Acts chapter 2. I want you to look at Peter's very first sermon. We're going to look at a couple of texts in between chapters 2 and chapter 10. And I want you to see how central the resurrection was to the message, to the preaching of the Apostle Peter, and then to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then verses 25 through 28, the Apostle Peter quotes some Old Testament texts to prove that the resurrection of Christ was foretold by the prophets. We're going to look at that in a second. Verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and he knew that God swore to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That it was Christ who neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again. What's the central idea for his message? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No! He's risen! That's it! That's all Peter wants to communicate to them. You killed him. God raised him up. 
You crucified the Lord of glory. God raised him up. He proclaimed the resurrection. Look at chapter 3, Peter's very next sermon. This comes hot on the heels of healing somebody in the temple. And as all the people gathered around Peter and John in the temple, and they started glomming on to them, wanting to hear more, Peter started to teach them. And look at verse 14. But you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. See how central it is? Now, if Peter and John had just kept their mouths shut about the resurrection... If they had just talked about the love of God and the love of Christ and had a real moral message and and talked about moral things and Christian things, they could have avoided a lot of trouble, but they didn't do that. They only had one message, and that was, He's risen. And that's what they proclaimed every chance that they had to proclaim it. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain, the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's their message. Chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. You get the picture? Almost every time they opened their mouth, it was about what? The resurrection. Look over at chapter 4, verse 30. After they're released from prison, and uh, they go back and they meet with the rest of the disciples, the rest of the brethren, and they pray together. Verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's their message. Now to the Jews, what did they preach? You crucified Him. God raised Him from the dead. Flip over to Acts chapter 10. Peter has a chance to preach Christ to a Gentile. Not a Jew this time, but a Gentile. You say, does he change his message? No, not at all. Peter only had one message. Peter only had one central thesis. What was it? Every time he presented the Gospel, it was the same thing. This is the Gospel message, and he went through it. Acts chapter 10, verse 39 We are witnesses, this is he speaking to Cornelius, we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Peter only had one message. He's risen. That's the message he proclaimed. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart of the gospel message. Without that, there's no gospel. Without that, there's no good news. And what's interesting about Peter's preaching is that when Peter proclaimed the resurrection of Christ, listen, he did so in the midst of the eyewitnesses to the events. He preached Christ not in some far distant land where people couldn't go to check it out if they wanted to. He preached Christ to Ananias and Caiaphas and the high priests and the Pharisees and the very ones who called for his death and hung him on a cross and who were in Jerusalem Peter preached the resurrection to them. And if there was ever a group of people who had motive and means and ability and opportunity to disprove the resurrection, it was those people. But do you notice that nowhere in the book of Acts and nowhere in history, when Peter and the other apostles preached the resurrection of Christ, nowhere did anybody ever say, no, it's not true. I was just out at the tomb this morning and I saw the body. Nobody ever said, "Uh oh, no, no, no. We stole the body. It's all a hoax. The Romans never said, we stole the body. Nobody ever produced a body. If they wanted to shut these men up, all they had to do was produce a corpse. 
and say, He's not risen. Here's the corpse. You know, it's difficult to proclaim that somebody's raised again and get people to believe that message when they can go for a little 15-minute walk on their lunch break out to where the body was buried and see the body for themselves. Very difficult to, to make a message like that fly, isn't it? Yet that's exactly what they did amongst a hostile crowd who had motive and means to disprove the message, they preached the resurrection of Christ. It was the central theme of Peter's preaching. And I want you to notice that it's the central theme of the Apostle Paul's preaching. Turn over to Acts chapter 23. This takes place after the Apostle Paul is arrested in Jerusalem and they've trumped up some charges against him about bringing a Gentile into the temple and defiling the temple, and that was really not the issue. What they're really trying to do is get the Apostle Paul killed, and he stands before the council of the high priests and the Pharisees, and he says to them in verse 6, or Luke says, that perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Paul cuts right to the heart of the issue. Why did they want him dead? Because he preached the resurrection. And that was an indictment against those who nailed the Son of God to the cross. And so they said, in order to shut him up, we have to kill him, and we're going to kill him, not because he preaches a message about God's love, not because he preaches a lot of moral things, but because he preaches the resurrection. And Paul puts his finger right on the heart of the issue, and he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Look over to chapter 25. The Apostle Paul went from that council and he stood before Festus, stood before Felix and he preached Christ to Felix and then Paul makes his way up all the way through the Roman hierarchy and he eventually gets to Festus and he preaches Christ to Festus and in the middle of chapter 25, Festus decides he's going to send Paul off to King Agrippa. And so Festus needs to come up with a letter to sort of introduce Paul and give the history of the case, which he does. And in the letter, look at verse 18 of chapter 25. Here's what Festus writes to Agrippa. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him. That's Paul. They began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Even Festus could get it. Paul asserts that this dead man, Jesus, is alive, and that's why they're bringing charges against him. They wanted to shut him up. Why? Because he preached the resurrection. Look over at chapter 26. Paul finally has a chance to stand before Agrippa. Verse 8, Paul says, Why is it considered incredible among you people that God should raise the dead? Well, that's a searching comment. Why should it be deemed incredible, unbelievable, if God should raise the dead? That's how he begins his defense. Look how he ends his defense, verse 23, or verse 22, Paul says, So having obtained help from God, I stand this day testifying both to small and to great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Central thesis of Peter's preaching, the central point of Paul's preaching. Listen, friends. All of Christianity is on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Because if that falls, everything else falls. That's why I say it's foolishness to say it really doesn't matter. It really does matter. Without that, you have nothing else. It was the central point of Peter's preaching and Paul's preaching. And listen, it's the central point of any message that you ever give to anybody else regarding salvation. 
You can't sit down across the table and talk to somebody about salvation or offer somebody the gospel without proclaiming to them that He is risen. Why? Because this is the gospel that according to the Scriptures, He was he suffered and He was buried and He rose again. That is the gospel. And you remove the resurrection from the gospel and you have no gospel. Without the resurrection, nothing else really matters. So God loves you. Who cares if Christ is not risen? What does that love prove? Nothing. He loves me, but He can't save me from death. God wants you to live a good life. What, what does that prove? Nothing. I mean, if He can't, He can love me and ask anything He wants of me, but if He can't save me from death, the resurrection is everything. It's a verifiable, historical event. Second, it was the central heart of all the gospel message through the book of Acts, and it still is today. And third, I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 13. It was predicted by the prophets. Acts chapter 13. This is the Apostle Paul. And he is in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And he is presenting the gospel to the Jews. And he is making a case to them. He is making the case that everything that Christ went through was predicted by the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And that's how he's presenting his gospel. Verses 26, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. All that was written concerning him, all the Old Testament prophets predicted, all of the death and the suffering of the Messiah. Now look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Now if you're a Jew sitting in that audience, the first question you're going to ask is, where is that written in the Old Testament prophets? Where was it written of our Messiah that He would rise from the dead? Where was that predicted? You show me that in the Scriptures, Paul, and I'll believe in your Messiah. You show me that the prophets predicted His resurrection. Paul was up for the challenge. Then Paul quotes three Old Testament texts, and I want you just to read them, and then I'll break them down and I'll show you his argument. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, and he quotes another Old Testament text, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. You probably recognize that because it's quoted back in Acts chapter 2. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. Now, Paul quotes three Old Testament texts. And without going into all three of those, let me just tell you what the argument is as he works his way through it. It's this. He quotes an Old Testament text regarding God's covenant, his promise to David. And the Apostle Paul is saying this, God promised to our father David that he would sit one of David's descendants upon his throne and that this descendant would rule over the house of Israel in an everlasting kingdom forever and ever. Just like the angel told Mary. Remember that? He will sit upon the throne of his father David and he will rule over the house of Israel forever. 
Mary understood exactly what the angel was saying. This one that was to be born of her would be the one who would be seated on David's throne and would establish the kingdom. Now how can one who is born of a woman, who is subject to death and decay, how can he possibly sit on a throne and rule forever and ever? He must die at some point, mustn't he? He must. Well, not if the one who is to rule forever and ever would die and be raised again so that death no longer has dominion over him. Then he could be seated on the throne of David and rule over the house of Israel forever and ever and ever, as long as death no longer had dominion over him. The Apostle Peter makes the exact same argument in Acts chapter 2. Once God said to David, I will seat one of your descendants on your throne and he will rule forever, the resurrection of Christ became a necessity. It had to happen in order for the Scriptures to be fulfilled. And that's what Paul's saying. God swore something to David. In order for that oath to come to pass, which Scripture has to be fulfilled, He had to raise the Messiah from the dead so that He would no longer suffer decay. So that in the future, God would set Him on the throne of His father David and He'll rule forever. It was predicted by the prophets. All of the Old Testament prophecies, the covenant with David, everything relating to the future kingdom, everything hinged upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And once that happened, once He was no longer subject to decay then all of the prophecies concerning him could be fulfilled. It was a requirement. Fourth thing I want you to notice about the resurrection from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Not only is it a verifiable historical fact and the heart of the gospel message, it was predicted by the prophets. And the fourth thing we notice is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof of coming judgment. Ending his address to the philosophers on the hill in Athens, Paul says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. I want you to notice something. God has fixed a day... He has set a day on which He will judge all men and He has given proof to all men that this man whom He has raised from the dead is to judge all men. You want proof that there's coming judgment? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now for those of us who have believed on Christ for salvation, the resurrection is good news. Because you know what it means for me? It means that because I place my faith in Him, I don't fear death. I don't fear judgment. I don't fear... I don't fear eternal wrath or hell. I don't fear God's condemnation at all. Why? Because He is my Savior. But for those who do not know Christ, you're on the other side of the spectrum. The resurrection of Christ for you is not good news. It is very bad news. It is the proof that there is a coming judgment. Proof that there's coming judgment. Because you'll all stand before Him. All of us will. And He'll either be your Savior and your Lord, or He will be your judge. You want proof that there's judgment? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, friends, that's the dividing line. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is either my hope for clemency, or it is my certainty of judgment. It is my proof of coming judgment. All of us have sinned, and all of us will stand before the one against whom we have sinned. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. There's not a single individual who is innocent. We have all rebelled against Him. We have all done our own thing and gone our own way. We have transgressed. We have taken advantage of His grace. We have spurned His kindness and His mercy. And we have refused His loving and His goodness. And all of us stand before Him as sinners in need of righteousness. Because when you stand before Him and He is either your Savior or your judge, you are going to need something. You are going to need righteousness. You are going to need something to clothe you, to stand in the presence of God, by which He can look upon you with favor. You need righteousness. But you can't get righteousness because you're a sinner. And you can't earn righteousness because you're a sinner. And you have no righteousness because you're a sinner. You're just like me. I don't have righteousness. I can't earn righteousness. I can't acquire it. There's only one thing I can do. And that's trust somebody else who has that righteousness, who can give it to me as a gift. And God does so on the basis of faith in His Son. Friends, He offers us clemency for our rebellion. He offers us a clean slate and forgiveness. He offers mercy and grace and forgiveness. But He offers it in one place, and that is in His Son. And that sacrifice is sufficient to cover your sin if you will look to Him for salvation and for eternal life. But it's in the resurrection of Christ. He is either your Savior or He is your judge. It's one or the other. But friends, there is an empty tomb, and there is 2,000 years of empty tomb that says that Christ the Lord is Lord and that He is risen and He offers you salvation. And if you refuse Him as Savior, you will face Him as judge. And so I beg with you today, if you have never trusted Christ for salvation, be reconciled to God today before you leave here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that is in Christ, for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. It does not seem unbelievable or incredible to us that God would raise the dead. And we thank you that after he suffered and paid the price and shed his blood to make atonement, and to pay the ransom price, the redemption price for our sin, that you raised him up from the dead, never again to suffer decay, the first fruits of all of us. And so we look to him, and we have that bold confidence that the resurrection of Christ means that we too will stand in our flesh, and we will see our God. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for the power of the cross and the power of resurrection which declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. And we look expectantly to you and thankfully to you this morning in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.